0: Welcome to the 653rd meeting of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable and tonight our, our featured speaker is Mr. Michael Kaufman and he will also be our guide next year on the spring battlefield trip and he is a very interesting gentleman I wish we had more than one evening to spend with Michael Kaufman. Uh, Donna Tui, our secretary, does have an announcement. Uh, Good evening, we have uh,
1: one person who signed up as a new member tonight, Stephen Horton, and we have a guest who is looking us over, and if he likes what he sees tonight, Richard Skoro will be a new member. Give three cheers for Richard, I hope he makes the right decision. (laughs) I've got two other announcements. When you called your reservation in uh, this past week, you heard a new voice, that of Mary Beth Foley. She's taken over this job. Mary Beth's back there. Stand up. She's taken over this job for the year. And when you call in your reservations or email, please clearly identify members versus guests so that we can make an accurate list. Second, the dues for this year, June uh, 6 0607, must be paid by our next meeting, October 13. This is the deadline uh, so that we can make up our roster and hand it out in November. Either, if you haven't paid, either mail your payment to Sonia or pay at the next meeting. And we have extra forms out on the table here if you need a form. And uh, the rate for membership dues has remained the same. Uh, We did not increase it after September 1st. And the roster of um, members will be made available in November, so please make sure you're a paid member so we have your name in the roster.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to begin the uh, formal part of our meeting with the... Infamous book raffle. Gentlemen? Infamous.
2: Infamous. <laughs>
3: these are the in, these are the infamous books, obviously. <laughs> Somebody wanted to buy tickets late and had to get changed. Here you go. <laughs> Here you
2: go. Okay. I... <laughs> go ahead.
3: Don't let now.
2: Okay. Well, uh, well, we have our speaker take uh, the first raffle ticket here, choose one. Trust more than anybody we have here at that, anybody at that table certainly, yes. Last three numbers are 781, (laughs) 352-781.
4: Uh, Politics, I love
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you have to take a next, yeah, Roger, pick the next one here. Better not be one of yours. 842. 352-842. Eight, there we go. Shows us an honest bunch here, more or less. Uh, take one last three numbers are 862.
5: 352-862.
2: Okay, I'll take one of the the great books there and make sure... Six six four or the last three five two six six four. Oh, there. Okay. Okay. We've raised one hundred and forty-eight dollars for Battlefield Preservation through this raffle tonight. Thanks for everybody buying the tickets.
0: And uh, now, for further comedic relief, we will have the quiz. Where is our quiz quizmaster? Thought you were awfully lenient today, but I did get help from the expert,
6: David. Some people complained that I was too hard, but before I get to the get to the comedic part, I want to briefly pay tribute to two stalwart soldiers of our organization who passed away. Um, a couple, about three months ago, it was with some shock that I opened the obituary page one day and found the name of Marvin Sanderman in there. Marv was a good friend to many of us here at the round table. He was supportive of myself and I think everyone else here. And he always asked if he could call me by my Hebrew name, Dovin. He would wish me a good Shabbos although I always forebore to ask him what two Jewish guys are doing here instead of on, in shul on Friday night, but we'll, let, <laughs> but we'll let that pass. Marv was a good friend, and he'll be missed, and it was also something of a shock also, despite the fact that he'd been battling a long, long illness for a long period of time, and that was, of course, Steve Stewart, who was a joy to be around and who ran the raffle and the, and the um, book sale and the, all the rest of it. with with great aplomb, and we will miss both of them, and hopefully we can go on the tour to Kentucky that Steve was planning. But now down to business and the comedic relief. Tonight's quiz, Michael Kaufman on American Brutus. All righty. True or false, the original object of Booth's conspiracy was to capture President Lincoln alive. That's true. Uh, True or false, General Grant until he canceled was to have been the chief attraction for the audience, not President Lincoln. True. Apparently presidents did not enjoy that big an audience in that day and age since he wasn't the, supposed to be the featured speaker at Gettysburg either. True or false? Unsubstantiated rumors did not travel over Washington following the president's assassination. False. They sure as hell did. Uh, did Booth plan to have Vice President Johnson killed? Yes, he did. at or whoever it was was supposed to do the deed lost his nerve. Did C.C. Bangs, an interesting name for this time, a U.S. Christian Commission Delegate, summoned Robert Lincoln, to his father's bedside? Well, thanks to Michael Kaufman, I now know that the answer to that is yes, he did. Hey, read the book. There were a whole bunch of 100s from the A-Team, from the Society for the Prevention of Steve Horton, from Peggy Sullivan, from Bill Lax. From Lorraine Lax. From White Sox, Bruce. Paula Walker. Cindy. Natty Bumpo and the Leather Stocking Tribe. Could almost be a rock band as well as, uh, as, well as the hero of books, Sid. Uh, Bill da- Bob Dawson and Bill Wiggins. Uh, looks like Carla C. And that's it. Thank you, Dave. Thank you.
0: You truly are one of a kind,
5: Dave.
0: (laughs) Well, at 2 o'clock this afternoon, I was practically breathing into a paper bag, thinking about this next part of the evening. Uh, We are starting our season, as you obviously know, all 80 people who are here. But we're starting it with a huge hole in our heart with the absence of Marvin and Steve. I don't think we've come to uh, grips with the fact that, fact that they won't be with us for, um, for the foreseeable future until we meet them again. Uh, their loss is huge. I was kind of making a joke and told not to do that. But I think their loss is so huge in our group that even McClellan could have driven his army through it. So I just wanted to say that. But we know that both of them loved this roundtable 1000 percent and I think because of the way that they gave to this roundtable we can continue in their fine manner. Marvin with all of his stories, Stephen with his uh, um, undying uh, fight for the 36th Illinois flag and his Sons of the Union veterans, and all the work that they did to promote what this roundtable stands for, friendship, integrity, and studying the American Civil War. So would you please stand, and we'll observe a moment of silence for Marvin and Steven, and then Jerry Kowalski uh, will also say a few remarks. So to Marv and to Steve. Thank you so much. Jerry.
7: Please be seated. Marvin Sanderman, positive. Always said positive things to make you feel good. Never heard him say anything nasty about anyone. He was a real mensch. Proud to have him as a friend. This medal that Nancy is wearing, I'm wearing one also, is the GAR Memorial Badge. It was given to me by the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War, mine, last year for taking care of Steve for the 100 days that he had to be in quarantine. They didn't know what they were giving me, though. They thought it was just a GAR medal. turns out to be a memorial medal that I now wear in honor of Steve. Twenty-five years, actually 24 years, and just into the 25th year by 10 minutes as a Chicago policeman, he died. 10 minutes into his 25th year 49 years old wife of five years daughter of three and a half years loved them both very much and he loved this round table very much he had a tour scheduled he wanted so much to go to mill springs it was all planned out Uh, everyone ready to uh, on on board online Um, and he loved the Civil War. In fact, he bought four acres of ground right outside of Shiloh, right off the battlefield, because that's where he was going to retire. Up until the end, he felt very positive about the fact that he was going to win the battle against lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But he was called, and he passed over the river. And the question I have for all of us is, who's going to do the work that they did? Who's going to be the positive influence in this club? Who's going to come and help over here, sell the books and the raffle and so forth? We need somebody to step up and do it. Think about that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jerry. Thank you all. And now, Roger, my senior vice president, has the distinct pleasure of introducing our wonderful speaker tonight. thank
4: Uh, Thank you, Nancy. Thank you all. It's, uh, it's a real honor for me to introduce Mike Kaufman. Mike, as you know, is the author of American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth, and the Lincoln Conspiracy, which was the 2004 Walt Whitman Award, received the 2004 Walt Whitman Award for the best Civil War book of the year. And as you heard, he's graciously agreed to lead one day of our tour, the Booth Escape Route, on Saturday during our tour in May of 2007, for which we're, we're very appreciative. Um, Mike is a a lifelong Lincoln assassination student, a recognized authority on the assassination, testified uh, in the 1995 Booth Exhumation hearings, has appeared in numerous uh, television historical productions, uh, and as a matter of fact, is in the television industry. He has spent over 30 years in television and production. He's currently the chief of production for an American-owned group of television stations which broadcast to the Mideast in Arabic and which are offered as, uh, by America as an alternative for people to listen to, an alternative to Al Jazeera. Previously worked for many years on CNN, uh, Larry King Live, and it was uh, you're going to want to talk to Mike about some of the people that he met working on Larry King Live. But a little-known fact about Mike is that um, American Brutus is not his first book on the Lincoln assassination. When he was eight or nine years old, he, he wrote and illustrated a book on the assassination. And when, in his research, he found out that Lincoln had been, had been killed, assassinated in a theater, he made sure to include a, uh, a motion picture screen in his illustration of the theater. <laughs> and, I, and I give you Mike Kaufman.
8: Well, thank you so much. Um, it's great to be here in Chicago, home of the—well, uh, I'm guessing the world's largest wooden mini ball. And um, I was back there looking at that a few minutes ago. It's amazing. Um, Wait, till you see the gun. Wait till I see the gun. It's a doozy. Well, I—I've. Um, as you heard, had a lifelong interest in the the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I know the pressure is on right here because uh, we have to talk somebody into joining the group tonight and I only ask that while I am speaking, somebody please bar the door over there until we can get a signature uh, out of him but the um The assassination of Lincoln is one of those things that has been explained in so many different ways. Um, You know, some people decide they're going to explain it by saying, well, this group or that group had something to gain or or lose or benefit by the assassination and so on. Um, Other people say, well, if you take this little fact and put this little fact together and connect the dots, only the dots are here and there, uh, you, can, you can easily infer all kinds of other historical points between A and B. I decided a long time ago that since history really is, is just people and what people do, I would go right to the heart of the matter and try and get inside the head of John Wilkes Booth because who would know better about how and why in this particular case, than the assassin himself. Now, <clears throat> I, I don't think you had very good sources to start out with. A typical source on the assassination would say uh, that John Wilkes Booth was a half-crazed actor. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, wow. I wonder what he would, done, would have done if he were fully crazed. <laughs> and you, know, you had to wonder. Uh, exactly. What, what do they mean when they say crazy? Uh, was this guy really uh, some sort of a drooling idiot who just uh, uh, went off and did something that made sense to him but not to anybody else in the world? And I started looking into his story and the things that he said and sort of uh, working from inside out in, into his world. Uh, he was born and raised in Maryland and he was a very A successful actor from a family of very successful actors. In fact, I don't think there was anybody, even people who'd never been to the theater, certainly heard the name of Booth before the assassination of Lincoln. And that was in part because his father Junius was uh, one of the one of the very few people who actually brought Shakespeare to the common man in America. His older brother, Junius Jr was an actor, his older brother Edwin was an actor, and, uh, and when he gave it a try, much to my surprise, he became an almost instant success, going first into the South after a year or two as a stock actor, and becoming, uh, well, how do you say this? Well, let's just say that, that when tickets went on sale for his performances, Uh, Sometimes they sold out so fast that riots resulted. And in some cities, Louisville, Kentucky, for example, um, there were plenty of injuries as a result of the riots. This was not a person you think of as the typical assassin or criminal. This was not what most people have said, Booth being crazy. This was a man who seemed to have it all together. I noticed in reading through the transcripts of the conspiracy trial they were talking about the issue of insanity and this was really interesting to me that they said what uh, what exactly do you do in determining whether a person is insane under the law in 1865 and Joseph Barnes the um, Surgeon General of the United States who had spent 12 years as the head of the Bellevue uh, Asylum in New York. He said, well, the most rigorous test is what we refer to as the Shakespearean test. And that is, if you can recite a story, typically one that they take from Shakespeare, if, if a person can recite that story and then come back later, say, a day or two later and recite it again, they're obviously not crazy. So how do you think this half-crazed actor would have done on that test? He would have either fooled a lot of people, or there's something wrong with the test, or else he, he actually wasn't crazy in any clinical sense as they understood it at the time. Well, as I started to look into the Booth story, my initial impression was that Booth would be portrayed, in fact this was in the book proposal, so he would be portrayed as a, as a kind of a split personality historically. That is, he would be a hero to one side, a traitor to the other. And I would go back and forth showing that in his world, it was perfectly normal to think, as he thought, that Abraham Lincoln, who had suspended civil liberties and so on, first in Maryland and then elsewhere in the United States, he thought that Lincoln was a tyrant and you can show that so many people in that time and place in Booth's neighborhood and Booth's state and so forth and in all the places Booth went in his travels during the war that a lot of people felt that way and then you flip to the other side and you say why did Lincoln do what he did? Was he really a tyrant? And of course he wasn't. When you think about the challenges that Abraham Lincoln faced which were unprecedented, never seen anything like it before or since. And you realize just, just how little he actually crossed that line. He just kind of put his toes over it, so to speak. And he even did so regretfully. He was not like Caesar who really sort of gloried in the, in the whole idea of having all this power and contrived to get it and so on. Lincoln always talked about the day when we could restore things to normal. That's what he lived for. That's what he fought for. That's what he dreamed about every day of the Civil War. And so if you balance out these two completely opposing views, you get the guy in the middle, John Wilkes Booth, who's sort of torn, who comes from the state in the middle. Maryland, which is neither north nor south. It's below the Mason-Dixon line, and it's a slave state, but it's not, you know, Virginia on the other side, which is clearly Confederate, or Pennsylvania on, uh, on the other side, which is clearly Union. Well, I thought that was going to be the story of John Wilkes Booth, I got a little surprised because as I started to go through this thing, and by the way, I was really a little squeamish about All of the accounts I found to describe Booth personally. You know, what kind of a person was he? He must have been vain and egotistical. He must have been so full of himself. You know, he had women falling all over him. He just used them and throw them away. He's kind of the rock star of his day and all that sort. Well, guess what? Nobody seemed to think that that really fit Booth at the time. They said, gee, you know, he's so personable. He looks at you and you think you're the only person on the face of the earth. He really seems to care, you know, he's just, and on and on and on. And I thought to myself, oh, no, how am I going to write this in a book that is to be sold in New England? How am I going to push this when I go and speak before the Lincoln Group of New York? What on earth am I going to say, you know, that this is, This is a model human being who was, you know, having a bad day. (laughs) I was, as I said, I was a little squeamish about that. And fortunately, as I got toward the end of my book, I started to see things in that phase of my writing in which I was studying the trial, the conspiracy trial, of eight people Who were accused of conspiring with Booth. As you may know, Booth, of course, was killed in a tobacco barn. And uh, and in doing my legal research, I found out that Booth's native state of Maryland um, passed a law uh, shortly after the assassination, which apparently is still on the books. I call it the Boston Corbett Law. Boston Corbett was a sergeant from the 16th New York Cavalry who shot Booth, uh, which resulted in Booth's death. But uh, Booth at the time was standing uh, in a tobacco barn that had been set on fire to flush him out. And the Boston Corbett Law passed, I believe, in 1866 in Maryland, made it a, an automatic felony for anyone to shoot someone who was in a burning tobacco barn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm told flogging is on the books yet in Delaware. And I know that people have written about weird laws and things, and, and I don't know that I've ever seen that one anywhere except on the statute books of Maryland. But uh, but at any rate, they uh, they really you know they, they liked their boy for a while, John Wilkes, and uh, and that may surprise that may surprise people from Chicago. But, uh, but at any rate, it, it was very hard to, to decide, you know, what am I going to do with this? How do I sell this uh, as a book? Or even for that matter, how do I sell it to the publisher? And, uh, and as I was going through the legalities of the conspiracy trial, the answers started slowly coming to me. And then I realized that what these lawyers kept talking about, the prosecution knew full well and the defense knew full well and some of the members of the military commission and certainly some of the defendants knew that the law itself had helped Booth get into that box in Ford's theater on the night of Good Friday, April 14, 1865. When I say that, I don't mean necessarily that somebody passed a law allowing actors to get in to talk to the president. What I mean is that when various people who were questioned after the assassination admitted that they had known about the plot or that they had strongly suspected Booth was up to something or that they had been in the plot and tried to get out, one after another said exactly the same thing. They said, I couldn't report it because Booth told me he could implicate me in the plot. And I thought, well, that's, you know, so you just, you just say, no, I wasn't in the plot and you tell your side of the story. Well guess what? Here's what put teeth into that threat. There was a law. In fact it was so commonly understood at that time, you know, we all know today, you have the right to remain silent and that sort of thing. In those days, it wasn't just a right to remain silent, it was no right to speak. And once you had been arrested, once you had been identified as a suspect, the prosecutors, they didn't talk to you. They threw you in jail. And you were over there waiting to go on trial, usually within a few hours actually. But you had no right to offer any evidence of your own. And this is the way criminal trials work. There's a lot of discussion about whether the military commission that tried these eight people in 1865 was fair. And a lot of authors in the past have trotted out this, you know, they couldn't speak in their own defense. Well, guess what? In those days, nobody could. They tried very hard to make this trial conform to the usual civilian rules of evidence. And as I go, and I love to tell this story, as I, as I started looking into, you know, somebody in the trial would say, well, gee, Greenleaf on Evidence says this, and then somebody else would say, no, no, Francis Wharton, volume 2, page 212, says that. Well, I went to the Maryland State Law Library in Annapolis. And I wanted to get these books, and they're, they're you know, huge. And, um, uh, and I asked for it, and I said, you know, uh, I, I want the 1853 uh, volume. And the woman looked at me, and she said, 1853? And I said, yes, I, I see it's on your, your card catalog. Here's the number. And she said, 1853? And I said, yes, please. And she went back. And she got this book. It was enormous. And, and you know she made this huge deal about blowing the dust off of it. And she handed it to me. And as she handed it to me, she said, you realize this is out of date? <laughs> I don't know what, what it was. I felt a little impish at that time. And I didn't explain myself. I just said, that's OK. And, and as she turned to, to, to walk away, I could see her rolling her eyes, you know, like this guy's a nutcase. And, uh, but I learned so much from these books because it was not Perry Mason. It was not Law and Order. It was not anything like I imagined, Judge Judy. It was not anything like I imagined the law to be. And it really put the lie to a lot of what has been said about the conspiracy trial in 1865. This whole fact, when you start to think about it, that a person could not introduce his own evidence, it was amazing. This was something that just went on and on and on and the consequences, because it was sort of an an, um, avalanche effect that it had on this case. And all these poor defendants are sitting there. Ooh can explain. I can explain. And it's like, not legally you can't. Just be quiet over there. So it turns out that when John Wilkes Booth decided to approach somebody about joining his plot, he made sure that he was a little cagey about it. I always like to take As an example, a man named Samuel Knapp Chester, an actor who worked in New York City and had previously worked for John T. Ford in the same stock company with John Wilkes Booth when they were both young pups. And uh, Booth went up to New York and said, would you join me in a speculation? And Chester says, I don't have any money. I can't speculate on anything. And Booth said, but... I'll give you money, don't worry about it. And Chester said, well, and I give, yeah, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, he said, hmm, I don't know, just give me money. Uh, you know, If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. No, I, th- I think I'll pass. And Booth sort of hounded him a little bit. And then he dropped it. And then he went back to Washington and he wrote Chester a letter about this speculation, which he never said what it was. But Chester wrote back to him. And in this letter, he said, you know, just give up on this speculation, you know. I'm not going to do it. I'm not joining this thing of yours. And then Booth would come back to New York repeatedly. He made 13 separate trips or more during the period of this conspiracy up to New York. And we know very little about what he was doing up there. But on some of these trips, he was talking to Sam Chester. And he would say, are you sure you don't want to be in this speculation? And Chester says, no, no, I, you know, leave, leave me out of this. I, I don't have, I don't have you know, the interest in this kind of thing. And then Booth would go home again and say, come on, how about it? And Chester would write him back again. But of course, Chester didn't know what it was. And as soon as Booth decided he had had enough of these letters about a mysterious speculation in his hands, he went back to Chester, and he says, do you want to know what that is? We're going to capture President Lincoln and take him down to Richmond and hold him hostage so his government will start to exchange POWs again like they used to. The South needs its manpower, uh, you know, rejuvenate the ranks and so so on. And, uh, and plus, you know, because they can't afford, and this is the Southern angle on things, because they can't afford to take care of their prisoners, they have no infrastructure, they, you know, they can't build barracks and everything, can't even take care of the guards who are guarding them. You know, a lot of these people are dying and it's making the Southerners look like barbarians. And so if we can force them to exchange POWs again, you know, problem solved. Well, Chester, of course, was horrified. Capture the president, you're out of your mind. I'm not going to do that. And then Booth said, well, you're not going to betray me, are you? Because I can implicate you. And Chester could immediately see what he meant. He didn't even know beyond the letters. He didn't know that right from the beginning, Booth had gone to somebody who knew Chester and got him to go to John Ford, who owned Ford's Theater in Washington. According to Booth, the plan was to kidnap Lincoln and Ford's Theater and take him out the back door But at that time, Edwin Forrest, the very famous actor, was playing there. He was very superstitious and had to have the back door locked. So Chester and and Booth, who had, had acted with Forrest in the past, knew this. And they said, okay, Booth said, look, all we need is somebody to unlock the door and open it up when we do this. And he actually got somebody to get John Ford to attempt, on Chester's behalf, to hire him away from New York because Chester was so anxious to come down and work in Ford's Theater. Now you've got all these witnesses who think Chester wants to do what Booth wants. And then you've got the letters. Just one example, and it's so many, so many examples of what Booth did to people he didn't trust. And when you see how the conspiracy develops and you take that kind of thing into account and you realize, in the words of, what, uh, one, of the one of the alleged conspirators, his, his attorney said, you are not prosecuting anyone here for what they did but for what Booth did to them. And this was one of his arguments and the prosecutor said, that's the law that's the way it works. And sure enough, when you go back and you look at the story again from that prism. Now, as, as you heard, I worked on Larry King Live. I got to, I, over the years, I got to talk to a great many people. When I wanted to know about um, stage fights with swords and all that, I asked Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. I mean, uh, when I wanted to know about characters in historical uh, 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 nonfiction, I asked Rita Mae Brown. She told me in fact, that if you go through the story, it's, it's kind of laborious, but if you go through the story from beginning to end with only two people in it, how do they feel about each other? What do they know about each other? Where did they meet? And you find, you know, does this guy like him? Does he like him? And you just keep going through that. And I went back to this beginning to end of the assassination story, keeping that in mind, and I suddenly... Realized that there was not this dividing line between people who were in the plot and people who weren't in the plot. There was a dividing line between people Booth trusted and people Booth didn't trust. And that's really kind of, that became sort of the key to the way I started looking at this, at this case. Now, the plot began, as I mentioned, Booth had gotten together with some friends in, in Baltimore. And they had, uh, they had had some uh, four buddies in the neighborhood who had been part of that um, uh, alleged plan by Wade Hampton's people, part of the Jubal early raid when they went into Washington they were going to uh, capture Abraham Lincoln. Some people were going to go around to the Point Lookout uh, prison camp and liberate the 15,000 people who were there and, uh, and, and all of this. Uh, ended up being called off by Jefferson Davis Uh, some people said he had no guts other people said hey it was in the Philadelphia newspapers you know it makes no sense to try it now but because half the people of southern Maryland were poised and ready to help in this thing it was no secret at all Booth must have known sooner or later that those people down there which is on the route from Washington down to Richmond If you're going to capture the president, you have to take him that way or go through a lot of blue coats the other way, that is straight into Alexandria, which had been occupied long ago. So Booth knew that this was friendly territory. He started scoping things out. He went into Canada where the Confederates had some offices in there and he did something very clever. He created the false impression that he had been cozying up and conspiring with some of the Confederate officials up there. In fact, all he was doing, and there are many examples of this where he did it with other people, all he was doing was sort of ambushing them in the hallway, talking socially with them, and being seen talking with them. But for sure the only thing he did that we know of was made contact with a man named Patrick Martin, who has been described as a Confederate... Agent, he was not. Patrick Martin was from a little town in Charles County, Maryland, called Bryantown. And, uh, you know, population about 12 now. But um, Martin knew because he was a blockade runner and the Confederates didn't like him, but he knew that there was a thriving business down in southern Maryland among people who were trying to sneak things across the Potomac River. The Potomac Flotilla was put in place there, all these Navy ships going back and forth on the river to try and stop this traffic in contraband, usually pretty small things, but sometimes people, going across the river into Virginia in violation of Lincoln's proclamation of blockade. Well, when Booth started finding out about these things, he went into Southern Maryland And he met a guy by the name of John Surratt, Jr. And John Surratt, Jr. had been going back and forth since 1863 between Canada, the New York, to Washington, to Richmond. He was a courier. And the Confederates, uh, the Confederate Signal Service did not trust him to be anything higher on the pecking order. They would not let him be a, um, a spy, for example. They just kind of held him right there. Now Booth had an absolute gift for finding out, just talking with people, finding out You know, what are your dreams? What do you really want to be? How do you see yourself? And if you join me, you can live out that dream. He went to a number of misfits, including John Surratt, and in Surratt's case, he said, He said, would you like to join me in this thing? I've been commissioned to lead this daring mission to capture the president, take him to Richmond. Now, John Surratt had never been trusted with anything that important before, and John Wilkes Booth looked at him with those big eyes of his and said, I chose you because you're the best one for the job. And of course, Surratt just kind of melted right into it and said, sure. Booth said, good. You pick the the people. uh, You set it all up. You do the escape, because you've been from Washington to Richmond many times. And John Surratt immediately starts to prove why the Confederates had not placed all that much trust in him. (laughs) The first thing he did was he arranged for the sale of some boats that they would place in different places. There were three of them. We don't know where two of them were, but we know about one. They were in three different places. In case they got off their route, they would take a different, they would take an alternate route and they would still be able to get across the river. And he hired a guy by the name of George Atzerat, who had been born in Prussia, had been living first in Virginia and then in, in a place called Port Tobacco, Maryland for a number of years. Anybody here ever heard of Dan Sickles? Anybody heard of Joe Hooker? Well, these two guys earlier in the war had been in charge of all these uh, troops who were down watching subversives in the Port Tobacco area, people like George Atzerot. Anyway, everybody in the federal government knew that these guys down there were secessionists. And so when John Wilkes Booth put somebody else in charge, he wasn't going to get his hands dirty in this. But John Surratt went and got, he subcontracted, in effect, a professional drunk, basically, because George Atzerat only wanted money. He said, how much are you going to give me? And John Surratt, apparently in a moment of levity, said, how about $30,000? And, uh, and Atzerat said, ooh, boy, that's it. He dropped everything he was doing which on the one hand looks very suspicious right away. And he started telling people that he was either going to die richer on the gallows. And I say, you know, um, one of the people he told this to was his sister. And he, I don't know whether he really thought much about the fact that she was married to a a U.S. Marshal or not. (laughs) But if she had decided to share that information, uh, you know, he would, have, he would have been definitely dying on the gallows uh, and sooner than anybody thought. But at any rate, um, there was a guy uh, who heard about all this and went up into Washington and found John Surratt with a uh, little friendly word of advice. You know, he said, I understand you guys are going to kidnap the president and take him across the river in that boat you've got down in Goose Bay. <laughs> Surratt said, can you be more specific? I don't, you know. No, I'm I'm just kidding. But he said, uh, he said, where'd you hear that? And he said, well, you know, Adzarat's down there. And this is now the biggest tourist attraction in the state of Maryland. Everybody's gonna go go down there and see the boat that's gonna carry Lincoln across in handcuffs. And um, and so John Surratt knew that he'd made a big mistake. Uh, in fact, he had made two because he had a boarder that he had brought a f- college friend of his, a guy named Louis Weichman. Uh, now Weichman was not stupid and he was not a drunk, but he was very, very nosy. And he was absolutely tingling with excitement at the thought that there was all this subversive business going on all around him, and he kept asking John Surratt and his mother Mary By the way, they lived in a boarding house in downtown Washington. It's now right around from the, it's been been renamed the Verizon Center. And it's in Chinatown. And it's a Chinese restaurant, and it's called the Walk and Roll. So when you're down there, cringe when I say that. Anyhow, um, but it is still there. And... um, and anyway, uh, this guy Louis Weikman was very nosy, and he kept asking a lot of questions, and this was starting to bother John Surratt because he didn't know how to answer them. And so, when Booth was talking with Surratt one day, Surratt said, "Look, I'm afraid I have to admit that we have these problems. That we have John, uh, excuse me, we have George Atzerodt, and we have Louis Weichmann, and either one of them could be a threat to this plot. Now, John Wilkes Booth, this is very telling. Rather than saying, okay, let's, let's go take them one at a time off in a dark corner somewhere, rough them up and say, keep your mouth shut, mind your own business, and so forth. I wouldn't dare call that the Chicago method. But, <laughs> anyway, the, um, The way that Booth decided to handle this was so counterintuitive, but keep in mind the laws at that time. If a prosecutor had evidence of your guilt, he had a moral, legal, and ethical duty to prosecute. And once you're a defendant, you are not a witness. So if Booth could make somebody look like he's a part of this plot, they could not legally testify and nobody would even ask them questions. And so what Booth did was he said, okay, I want to meet this Atzerodt character, and I want to meet him in Weichmann's office. Well, guess where Weichmann's office was? The War Department. Now, you've got all these people in uniform and you've got all these clerks. By the way, it was the Office of the Commissary General of POWs. This was one of the things that, you know, John Surratt wanted to help keep track of the prisoners on behalf of the Confederacy and so on, and he got Weichman to give him some information here and there about how many there were and so on. But anyhow, John Wilkes Booth had gone into the Surratt House a few times and had met Louis Weichman. Weichman had gone to his office bragging to the other clerks about how this extremely famous and handsome actor was like this with him. And there comes John Wilkes Booth into this office, unsolicited, unknown. I mean, just he just walks in, and Lewis Weichman jumps up and says, why? You know, John, hey, look, everybody, I told you. He and I you know, know each other and so on. And Booth is, you know, patting him on the back and telling everybody, yeah, we're good friends. You know, we've got things going on together. <laughs> and, um, and all of this is creating an impression among these clerks who are not going to forget this. Not this big celebrity right there in front of them. And then in walks John Surratt with George Atzerat, so I've referred to him as the human hairball, who, who always had a way of looking low and being real proud of it. And, and by the way, if you, if you want to know how Booth was thinking through these things, Booth had bought brand new suits for all the conspirators because he didn't want anybody to say, why are you hanging out with him? He thought, you know, if we're all well-dressed and look like gentlemen, nobody will ask questions. I mean, that's the kind of level of of detail that he put into this and the thinking that he put into this. Well, anyway, um, all of these clerks in the Commissary General of Prisoner's Office saw John Wilkes Booth motion to. George Atzerat, they stepped off to the side, and Booth started talking privately to Atzerat. Atzerat later said, when he was trying desperately to make himself a witness rather than a defendant, he said, all he, all he said to me was, don't drink so much. But, you know, nobody heard that. All they know is these guys are talking privately, like real close together in the corner. And it was one of the things that connected George Atzerodt to John Wilkes Booth in the minds of many witnesses. That's how he did things. That's how Booth built this. That's how he kept his plot secret from August of 1864 to April of 65, the most paranoid time in American history. And he didn't get caught. And that's how he did it. He played on people's minds. He manipulated them. He was so cunning and so cold-hearted that he actually told people before that this guy, I wouldn't mind sacrificing him. And he sacrificed a lot of people. There was another actor by the name of John Matthews who lived in a boarding house across from the theater. And Booth went to visit him after having this blowout. He had asked Matthews to join the plot. Matthews says, oh my god, I can't do this. I can't. No, no, no. I mean, don't get me involved in something like this. Next day, Booth goes over to Matthews' bedroom, which was the room in which Abraham Lincoln later died, and Booth stretched himself out on that same bed, which is in the Chicago Historical Society, and started talking to him, saying, "Oh, you know, <laughs> you can't take a joke. I mean, come on, you know." And he starts making nice to him. He says, "Look, I, I scared you, and I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. I have this little peace offering. Now." To an unknown rookie actor like John Matthews. This is huge. One of the most famous names in the stage, in the history of the American stage is there in his room and he's talking to him and he's trying to make friends with him. And Booth says, tell you what, I, I've pretty much given up acting for a while. Let me give you this. I used to keep my swords for stage fights in it. It's a beautiful black lacquer box. He said, here. Take it. You know, keep your things in it. And, uh, and Matthews was absolutely thrilled and he ran around telling everybody, showing everybody this black lacquer box, the same box that at least six different people saw pass from New York down through the Washington uh, uh, train station into the National Hotel containing the rifles and guns and handcuffs that were to be used for the conspiracy. <laughs> you know, so it was like cynical as can be. right? this is what Booth did to people. Anyway, uh, you, you get the point. And This is not just a few people. This is when you look at it, this is every single person who knew about the plot, might have found out about the plot because they were close. And that's how I describe Lewis Weichmann. Weichmann was living at Mary Surratt's boarding house in March of 1865. You have to ask yourself later on, you know, why did he become the star witness of the prosecution when they admitted from the beginning that they had more evidence against him than against anyone other than Booth? Why did they, how did they with a clear conscience say, this guy's a witness now, he's not a defendant? I'll tell you why, Weichmann himself never knew. They could use as a little pressure on him, that they could use the fact that we've got a lot on you and we can hang you, you know. And they used it and they scared him half to death. But what they had was a letter. See, Lou Weichman had been in his bedroom on the 17th of March, a month, almost a month before the assassination. And Booth and the boys had been out for a ride in the country. What they had been doing was supposedly trying to kidnap the president. And he never showed up. So they came back one at a time, burst through the front door of the Surratt Boarding House, the walk and roll, and went straight to Louis Weichmann's bedroom, opened the door, slammed it behind them. Oh, I didn't see you there. How are you doing? And then they'd walk out. This according to Weichmann. And he's like, this is really weird. John Wilkes Booth, John Surratt, Lewis Powell. They came into his room, shut the door behind them, and seemed to have no business being there. And he started to realize with all this funny business going on around him, he knew John Surratt was a, you know, up to his eyeballs in Confederate underground activity. And he started to get scared, and he wrote a letter to his priest, his confessor, his mentor, a guy named Father Joseph B. Menu, over in Baltimore. And we don't know what Weichmann's letter said, but we know that Father Menu sent a letter back immediately. He said, I, I really had to answer immediately because you sounded so shook up, you sounded scared and puzzled, and so on. you know, it's clear from Father Menu's letter that Weichmann had just told him there's some really serious stuff going on. Mary Surratt is in it. She's a rebel of some kind. I'm scared. I can't figure this out, but I have a feeling I'm going to get in trouble. You can sort of infer from what the, the priest said that this is what Weichmann had just told him. But that letter never reached Louis Weichmann because when Father Menu sent it to him, it went to the walk and roll. and somebody intercepted it. And it ended up in John Wilkes Booth's trunk in his hotel room. John Surratt, by the way, was gone that whole week. So it doesn't look like he was the one who gave it to Booth. I'm thinking maybe Mary Surratt. But at any rate, John Wilkes Booth knew from that letter that Lewis Weichmann was that close to reporting, discovering and reporting what was going on around him. The government found that letter and they knew he had not discovered it. He didn't know what was going on. He was not guilty of participating in this. But they could also see that from that date on, every time Booth or Surratt made a move, they made a point of grabbing Lewis Weichmann and bringing him along. Because they always wanted him to write his name on something with them, whether it's a hotel register, a letter, or anything else. And you'll notice from that time on, Mary Surratt, very famous trip she made to the Surratt Tavern on the day of the assassination. She said, I had to go down there because I was, I was um, uh, trying to get money from somebody who owed me money. But the letter, and she was perfectly capable of writing her own letters, but the letter asking that man for the money was dated at Surratsville, April 14th, and it was written by Lewis Weichmann at Mary Surratt's insistence. And so they're always trying to place him with irrefutable evidence in all the right places, the crucial. Events of the conspiracy, he's always right there. And so when I realized that this is what Booth was doing to people, and Weichmann was a decent guy. In fact, that's kind of the whole point. The people Booth did this to, the people he sacrificed or tried to sacrifice, the people he manipulated, the people he conned and lied to, were the people who didn't want to join in a plot against the government, who didn't want to kill or hurt anyone. In other words, they were the most decent ones at all of all. He even included his own brother Edwin, whom he detested and had voted for Lincoln in 64. He even kept going up to, to Edwin's house and he even told John Surratt, you should see my brother's house. When you're up in New York, stop in sometime. So all these, you know, hopefully all these Confederate spies, he kept inviting all these people to go drop in on Edwin, who was totally bewildered about all this. But when you realized that the people he was doing all this to were the most decent ones, then you really see a side of John Wilkes Booth that completely pushes right out of the picture that whole nice guy who loves poetry who's not the least bit vain or egotistical, all those nice things that were said about Booth by his contemporaries, they don't amount to anything. Because the real John Wilkes Booth was a guy who was here sacrificing all these good and decent people so he could get this country in the direction he wanted. Not in the direction they had voted, not in the direction Abraham Lincoln foresaw, the people of the North foresaw as the best way to go. But John Wilkes Booth had personally decided, I'm going to affect the course of history and I don't care who it hurts in the course of doing that. And so it comes back again to the theme of the book, And I was always so disappointed to hear that Booth, you know, that's half crazed actor and so on. Well, maybe he wasn't half crazed at all, but he definitely was. And this is the most important part of all. He definitely was the one thing we always knew he was. He was an actor. You might say that he was acting his way and staging his way through a real life drama that was probably worthy of somebody like Shakespeare, but it was very real and very scary. Thank you. Can we do questions?
6: Sure.
0: Mike said he would take about five questions. You
8: can they were the five on the paper. No. <laughs> yes. I, think, well, I believe it was Shakespeare
5: that Shakespeare had said that the whole world is a stage, and uh, you spoke of uh, uh, decent people being injured as a result of those actions as we know a lot of decent innocent people were killed in the Civil War
3: mm-hmm. on both sides
5: that war as we know is the most costly in American history more Americans were killed in that war than all other wars combined from the revolution up to including the Civil War so it's in the context Study both that he was in the midst of a war. So, which side was he on? If he had been, of course, I like your detailed description of how he planned and carried out the uh, assassination. However, in evaluating him, it's all from a matter of perspective. If he had been involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler, <laughs> Then he would be looked upon as a girl, as a James Bond behind the scenes trying to get to the dictator.
8: Take that comparison to the New York Lincoln Group, though.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> when, I,
5: when you uh, and I want to read your book someday, Martin uh, Brudz, I was hoping that uh, in addition to talking about the details of the plot, we'd get some idea. Of, the political philosophy of of Booth and the extended theatrical Booth family. What was their feelings about the Civil War? And I could see that um, uh, while we often praise uh, Lincoln, because he dismissed McClellan, who was moving too slow. He wanted a fighter, somebody that's going in there and fight the war of attrition. kill those uh, decent Southerners as well as the Union soldiers decently that were fighting in that. And as we know, uh, so he finally found Grant, who acquired the title Butcher. And uh, I recall my hero uh, Sheridan was quoted, uh, I believe. He said after his Cinecola uh, <coughs> campaign, he's going to annihilate that area so the goal would need rations.
0: And and your question?
5: Yes, <laughs> and uh, then of course we have uh, uh, grants or Sherman's infamous march to uh, they see. So in this context of slaughter mm-hmm. and uh, all this tragedy, uh, Booth could have looked upon Lincoln not as someone who was merely uh, uh, withholding habeas corpus, but rather someone. That got us into a unnecessary war that could have been settled peacefully with more uh, reason and leadership. So he might have looked upon Lincoln as a Hitler of the day, and therefore his his dramatic statement, thus be the tyrants, makes sense. So but, do you have any comment about what his feelings were about the war?
8: Okay, um, yeah, As as I said, I started out with the thought that when, when you sort of get into Booth's mind and go through the whole war from a Marylander's point of view, uh, you, you get a very bad taste in your mouth about Lincoln right from day one. Before he even became president, he came through the city, you know in disguise and early and all that. And there was just never really there was never a, a, a positive vibe between Lincoln and the state of Maryland, and people were so locally oriented state oriented at the time Uh, you know the federal government was nothing more than the postmaster down the road and he might have been your cousin or something but but at any rate yeah definitely if you get completely into booths circumstances and situations you find that his feelings were purely rational uh... again it's half the picture the other half is lincoln's half looking back this way and you see he had perfectly good reasons for doing what he did. That was one of the biggest tragedies of the Civil War, uh, besides the loss of so many people, is that so many people were sincere about it. And if you didn't have two legitimate causes, you wouldn't have had a war in the first place. Now, I said, um, uh, uh, you, know, in a, you, you were mentioning about uh, the comparison to Hitler and so forth, uh, I think a lot of people the reason they're very much offended by things like that is that um, is that Lincoln did not do if you if you look back and compare the two you know he did not order slaughter of, of masses of people and so forth what the the uh, the policy became in 1864 was a hard war policy uh, aimed at getting it over with and um, and so it, again if you if you try and and maintain a balance there and see both sides of the story you realize, yeah, I mean, he's got a point, but so does he. Yes, in red dress.
3: Yeah. Um, I've done some research on uh, the Booth family and the Lincoln murder from a somewhat different viewpoint, and that is, I started looking at Booths as American actors. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, I wasn't initially interested in John Wills Booth as the assassin at all, I was interested in him as Edwin Booth's younger brother. But it seems to me that there, that there are two things, and I think these may fit with what, what you're saying. Number one, the Booth's were a family of actors who were absolutely obsessed with the stage. They were very, very good at it, as, as you say, they were the superstars of their, of their day. And none of the Booth men had anything to do with fighting in the Civil War, despite the huge numbers of Americans who took part. How on earth did they avoid that? Well, it had to do with their focus on the stage, and they were allowed to get around the country in ways that other people couldn't during the war. Um, I would suggest that one of the things that was operating here, why didn't John Wilkes Bluford, he felt so strongly about it, and he was an excellent shot, among other things. Why didn't he get involved in this until 1863? Answer, he was spending all his time on the stage. What was going on outside didn't mean anything real to him. Um, so, so that that would be that would partly account for what you said. The other thing is, you look at the people he picked: um, Ansarat, Powell, Davy Harold who knew his way around Washington like right the back of his hand. Powell was was the muscle. You're looking at the formation of a terrorist
8: cell, mm-hmm. and that's what you described. Exactly. Yeah. Back in. Uh Back in the, in the uh, 1970s I worked in the FBI academy and uh, uh, they were developing the whole idea of criminal profiling and all that business and, and uh, somebody knew that I was involved in all this sort of thing and, and he said you know I've got this theory. Uh, his, his specialty was conspiracies. He said you need somebody with a brain, you need somebody without a brain. <laughs> And you know and somebody with muscle but somebody with connections and all this and I said that's it I mean that's what yeah. Booth had you're absolutely right now there as for the family um, yeah they were not only obsessed with the stage but also with political uh, they were very political in the past and what one of the reasons they stayed out of the war in fact Edwin Booth fled the country and so did the younger brother Joe uh, who, who was in Australia for a time in England for a time but um, But at any rate, one of the one of the ways they or reasons they avoided the war is because there was such a strong rift in the family, and they they were so dominated by the mother Mary Anne, they they loved her so much. Let's say that um, um, who was a widow, that um, uh, for them even to talk about the war was such a sore point. And they had a rule, we don't, we don't talk about this in front of mom, we don't say anything. Um, and John Wilkes, in fact, spent a lot of months avoiding everyone else in the family, specifically so they wouldn't get in a discussion about what was going on. Um, they avoided the draft, incidentally, because the draft was handled locally. And all you had to do was not be home when they came knocking, um, which is not hard for an actor, you know, as you travel around the country. Yes.
1: Um, what can you tell us about the family history of Booth? I asked this question because I recently learned that Booth was the ancestor of the very prominent woman living in London today. Her name is Sherry Booth Blair, the Prime Minister's wife.
8: Well, the um, the Booth family um, had they had their roots in Portugal. And there was a, um, they're supposedly Jewish a number of, of generations back, but there was a, uh, um, a number of stories, unconfirmed stories, that they kept getting thrown out of their country wherever they happened to be for their political views uh, in countries that were monarchies. And uh, they ended up with um, uh, a man, a silversmith named John Booth in, uh, in London, uh, the same neighborhood as... Um, uh, Charles Dickens and some of these other people, and uh, uh, anyway, the uh, the most famous member of the family was uh, not Booth but John Wilkes, who was the guy who was said to be you know the the greatest friend of liberty living in England during the American Revolution, uh, a man who uh, had sparked such outrage against King George the that he was said to have helped the cause of American independence and so forth. This is who John Wilkes Booth was named after. Uh, John Wilkes was living at a time where one of his cousins, Richard Booth, uh, who used to keep a picture of George Washington in his house and make people bow to it. Um, (laughs) Lawyers. Anyway. you know, they, they were so political and their politics was always in that direction. Richard Booth named his sons Algernon Sidney and Junius Brutus, okay? Algernon Sidney was, in the Times of London, called me years ago before Tony Blair was Prime Minister, and they said, is there any truth to what she says? She's very specific that she is a direct descendant of Algernon Sidney Booth, the brother of Junius Brutus Booth. And I said, Junius Brutus Booth... The father of John Wilkes Booth was so, let's say, precocious that he had, before the age of 15, two paternity suits against him. However, Algernon Sidney, if this story is true, must have beat him by a mile, because if he had descendants, um, you know, he died at the age of five. <laughs> And the Times of London published this story, and it still hasn't gone away. Um, Cherry Booth still says, No, 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 it's true. I'm descended. And, you know, I mean, we have the records. We know that the guy died when he was five years old. Maybe a different Algernon Sidney Booth. But at any rate, that's, you know, that's what. what, uh, uh, Way in the back.
4: Yeah, this question is uh, pretty quick about uh, Booth's diary. Uh, when he was captured, supposedly I read some of these conspiracy theories, were there. 18 pages of his diary was cut out. I'd just like to comment on that, and if it was, what do you think was in those pages?
8: Okay, I know what was in some of those pages. The, the, the Diary of Booth was a, an 1864 pocket diary. Uh, when you're an actor, and believe me, you've done a lot of looking around, every actor who travels has to keep a little book and they all looked exactly the same they had in them uh, you know I'm going to Detroit next week and on this date I start the first play we're doing is Richard the third I'm supposed to get half the box office receipts and so on so on that's what kind of stuff was in this according to Sam Arnold one of the conspirators who saw the the diary was completely intact um, there is in the National Archives a whole stack of papers that were found in Booth's trunk in the hotel, and uh, some of them are little pages, uh, or snippets of pages that have St. Louis, December 5th, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and I think those are are some of the missing pages from the diary. Now, this was mundane, and Booth was very, very well aware that what he was doing was going to be, you know, part of the National Park Service museum system someday. (laughs) And, um, and, and, you know, he didn't want that sort of thing to be in. So I say that he tore the pages out himself. Now, when, when, the, um, when he lay dying at the Garrett Farm, Everton Conger, soon to be played by Harrison Ford, um, reached into his pocket and pulled out this diary, and he looked at it right on the spot. And he later said, no, it had all these pages missing. Uh, he handed the diary over to somebody else who said, no, it had all these pages missing and they put it in the vault and when it came out two years later remember a defendant cannot offer his own evidence and nobody on trial in the conspiracy trial could have offered booths diary as evidence especially because of the double the double whammy on that one booth was one of the conspirators so you can't have him making up his own words in his own defense or in the defense of his fellow uh... anyway. Uh, Sorry, sorry for the digression there. But anyway, um, so you had all these people looking at the diary. When it came back out, uh, Lafayette Baker, the chief of the National Detective Police, a man the Congressional Committee said had never told the truth in his life, even by accident. (laughs) I will certainly second that. Because he said, no, this diary was fully intact when I had it. Well, they really pressed him on the fact. He didn't actually have it. He saw one person pass it to another. Uh, and, uh, and he's the one who stirred all this up about 18 pages. Where he got 18, nobody knows. It's actually like 52. But um, the FBI lab examined it back in the 70s. But I think Booth tore them out himself. A couple of those pages were used to write notes to people during the escape. And it really is the answer is really mundane. Sorry about that.
3: Is there any indication that Booth fought beyond the assassination itself? because it seems to me that if his goal was to change history and presumably in a way favorable to his beloved south killing the president of the united states and hopefully the vice president and the secretary of state several days after the south has lost the war is not likely to affect history in a way that's going to be beneficial to the south in terms of the reaction
4: that this is going to create
3: in the north is there any indication that anyone ever
8: thought of the consequences of this an outstanding question. I, I always say, to me, this reads so much more like a revenge killing. It's so full of emotion and not thinking. If Booth wanted to, to help out the Confederacy, they weren't completely dead, by the way. Robert E. Lee surrendered Virginia troops. There were still plenty of people uh, out in the field, and Booth kept sort of clinging to that the way certain Japanese soldiers did up until the 50s and 60s. But um, but anyway, the, um, um, the, the point I always make is those, those people who think that this was a Confederate plot, you know, why does it make sense for the Confederacy? If John Wilkes Booth is in town, he doesn't get General Grant, who was in town earlier. Uh, he doesn't get Edwin Stanton. doesn't even try. Uh, he doesn't get uh, General Halleck or General Hancock or General Auger or... Uh, the War Department Telegraph Office, I mean, he does nothing to the infrastructure of the war effort. He goes after the political people, the ones he's hated since, he, you know, since way back, and, uh, and it just wasn't thought through at all. And, um, and that, to me, tells me that you know, this, this was Booth, pure and simple. It wasn't anybody else, it wasn't radical Republicans or anybody, it, it was just somebody who just couldn't handle what was going on at that time?
0: Thank you. Thank okay. you, Mike. Thank you Thank so you. much. We, don't leave. We, we would not want you to go. We could we could ask you questions all night long. I did ask Mike if he could talk to one person from the Civil War. Who it would be? Guess who? You know the answer. Booth. And he said uh, the one question he would ask him was. Could he have his autograph? (laughs) (laughs) We have, Mike, for you, for our appreciation, we have your own bag with the Chicago Civil War Roundtable logo on it. Thank you. Oh, and something else, too. Thank you. We have for you a medallion. I just have to figure out how to open it. Presented to you from the Civil War Roundtable to Michael Kaufman, September 8th, 2006, Thank you for a most wonderful talk Thank and you. coming to us. And this is a little stand that it rests on. Okay? Okay. This Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you and just before we dismiss, I forgot Father Bob has an announcement. Do not forget next, uh, next month our Nevins Freeman Award. Thank you, Father. V-
7: very quick announcement. Um, our Illinois monument at Vicksburg is 100 years old this year and on October 28th, Saturday, from 10 to 11, a group of people representing Illinois are going down for a special celebration. Chicago Light Artillery will be there, the Sons of the Union Veterans will be there, the 33rd Illinois Regimental Band will be there, and it would be nice if Chicago Roundtable could be represented. If anybody would be interested in doing that, Uh, talk to me as well. It'll be an hour-long program on Saturday, October 28th. Just want to put that in your mind right now, think about it. If you're interested at all, let me know. I'll mention it again next month, but I'd love to have you come down and join. uh, I don't know if I'll be able to make it myself, but I'd certainly love to have our group represented to be there as well. I'm in contact with the people who are going down. be happy to set it up. Thank you.
0: That's October 28th, September 16th for the DuPage County Civil War Show. Thank you for coming. Drive safe and thank you, Mike. Wonderful. Bye bye. I don't know who this is. I Hi Matt. Uh, oh Nix thank Saturday. you. Thank you. Uh, I'll
6: try. Okay. Um, and if I come I'll come in uniform.